Hello and welcome to the Prepared Parent Podcast, the podcast that aims to help you become the best parent you can be through science and the Montessori method. Today I am reviewing The Montessori Method by Maria Montessori. Um, I don't know if this is the first book she wrote. I think it is, but I haven't fact-checked that. It is the book, however, that describes the origins of all of her methods and how it all began, as well as goes over the... Um, method and methodology um, and the didactic materials that she invented. Uh, This book focuses on the two and a half to six and a half year olds because those were the age of children she was working with at the time. Um, There are definitely some adaptations that can be made if you're working with children younger or older, but the principles of the Montessori method remain the same. So If you ever do get the chance to read this one, you can find it for free on the Gutenberg Gutenberg Project, excuse me, and also LibriVox has an audiobook version. However, I just, fair warning, because it was written in the early 1900s and because she was a doctor and a scientist, it's very worth definitely still worth reading and checking out um but look if you give it a try and it just goes over your head there's nothing wrong with that and there are other ways to learn okay so to start off her book she talks about how it came to be they give the speech that was given at the opening of her children's house um which is what she called the the original Montessori preschool was called the Children's House. So basically, a little about Marie Montessori. She was a scientist and doctor who lived in the late 1800s and died in 1950. Um, But when she started this method, she had been working with disabled children. Fun fact, she was the first female doctor in Italy, which is pretty cool. Um, Just... She wanted to do it, and everyone said no, and she wanted to do it, and she did it. I, she's cool. She's one of my role models. Anyway, so she, she'd been working with disabled children. And a lot of people think that Marie Montessori came up with this all on her own, but she was actually building off of work from previous uh, people. So one was Dr. Jean-Marc Gaspard Itard, who mentored Edouard Seguin. These are... French names, so I'm probably butchering them. Excuse me for that. And Edward Seguin worked with disabled children and wrote a book. And he was working on how to teach uh, disabled children. Is disabled the appropriate term? Well, excuse me if it's not. I don't know the right term for all of these things. I know that because the the time that this book was written, they are often referred to as deficient children. Um... And I know some people take issue with that, but it was what they used at the time. Um, So yes, the Siguan fellow, he wrote a whole book and she studied it and read it and really tried to understand it. And she took all of his principles and his didactic material and she built upon them. So she was originally working with disabled children and she was applying his methods. And in Italy at the time period, and all over the world in the time period, but it she lived in Italy at this time, there was a push for creating utopian cities, 
a push for helping the poor. And so they built this whole poor complex, the city did, or some benefactor did, I don't remember who. But they built they built it, and, you know, it was basically that there was a communal kitchen where all the people would take turns cooking and serving for everyone else. There was a communal fountain in the middle where everyone could go for their washing, so it was readily available. And they also provided basically a daycare center um, for ages roughly two to six, so that the working the poor working parents who both have someone care for their children and this was just a big project uh, for the time as you can imagine um, it would be a big undertaking nowadays um, but she was really into charity and into helping the poor Maria Montessori was a lover of peace and of world peace and as she worked with the children, she discovered the nobility and beauty of the human spirit. And she watched these children develop that humanity. And she was just so impressed by their souls. And she was so impressed by the way that her observations and efforts unleashed um, those souls. Uh, for their greater and highest potential. Um, so she, like I said, was a scientist. And basically, her entire method is the scientific method. You observe, you hypothesize, you experiment, you repeat. But because she was a scientist, she was able to observe human development, or childhood development, as we call it, um, and as she took these observations, she was able um, to approach the children differently. She really believed in, she had to forget the prejudices of her time. Because every era has its own idea of what kids are and aren't. And we all get it wrong. You know, we used to give poisons as medicines. And, you know, some things we got right. You know, we learned how microscopes work and whatever. But, you know, every time and era and culture has some things wrong. And she basically was advocating for setting all of that aside. And just observing what were, what was. What really was. And... Um, so this is kind of interesting. For example, later in the book, she talks about how, you know, during her time period in, in her location, it was believed that introducing writing or reading to children before the age of six would ruin them somehow, ruin their ability to learn to read and write. And she they said, look, you can teach them and we can't please teach our children to read. Please give them the advantage we don't have. And finally, Maria Montessori just, she gave in. She was like, okay, they all want me to do it. They're all begging me. 
with them one day, and she asked one of the five-year-old, four or five-year-olds, to uh, draw a picture of the chimney with some charcoal that she handed him. And so he's, you know, And as soon as he did this, two or three of the other kids looked and saw and went, I can write too. Give me the chalk. And they all started fighting over the charcoal and they all started writing words. They were just going crazy. And she basically said she was unable to quell their spirits. These children were so excited about writing. They went home and wrote on bread and on paper and they never stopped. And the parents were like, what have you done? And they she just unleashed this like veritable tsunami of excitement about the ability to write and you know she kind of I, repented would be a word uh repented of her belief that she shouldn't have taught them earlier and actually switched to oh gosh i was wrong and we should really be teaching them much younger so that when it does fall into place it's not all of this repressed desire going wild but rather like appropriately metered out when it's developmentally appropriate so that it can be, when that need is met, it can be uh, used appropriately. That energy can be used appropriately. I'm sorry if I'm a little slow today, guys. I'm just really tired. Uh, but here, I have time to do it, and I don't do it consistently sometimes, so here I am. Anyway, excuse me for that, but continuing on. So yeah, she talks about how this all started, and she talked about how she was working with them. And... She did come and visit the children a lot. She was the one in charge of it. But there was... She wasn't there all of the time. There was a directress she worked with. Um, I don't know that she said her name or not, but I don't recall it if she did. But basically, this directress would stay with the children all day, and the two of them would stay in communication. And periodically, Montessori would come and observe and make changes. Um, so yes, the Montessori method, she talks about it. Um... She built it on three principles. The first is freedom. They should choose what they're learning and how much and when. Um, you know, in contrast to today, where I think we're very, very hyper-focused on preschool age. presenting what was developmentally appropriate. I really think she came up with a beautiful system that was quite simplified, um, that allowed that allowed the children to grow into that, into their own humanity, into their own spiritual person. Um, and that's just so important. Um, because to be successful at life, you need to be successful at life. Knowing checklists, memorizing facts, even having a successful career isn't life, you know. There's being married and having kids or, I don't know, caretaking or, you know, maybe you do two or three different careers in your lifetime. 
And you need to be prepared to do all of those things. And life isn't fulfilling unless you're following your own inner desires. And so she really respected that even from a very young age, children are people and they have those inner desires and we respect that by giving them freedom. Um, now, sometimes people are like, oh, well, you know, Montessori is all about giving kids, you know, no limits at all. It's terrible for them because they need to have structure. Oh, she did have structure. Um, obviously, she's, she states this quite clearly, obviously, if they're harming themselves or others or the materials or the environment, yes, you should stop them um, and redirect their energies uh, because what we're wanting to give them is freedom for constructive ends, not freedom for destructive ends. We stop destruction, but we step back and allow creation in whatever form it takes. And this is really important because sometimes with Montessori materials, um, I think parents, but also teachers are really prone to be like, oh, that's not how we use that. We need to stop now because we only use it the way it's meant to be used. And she never did that. As long as it was constructive... <laughs> Um, she would allow them to do what they wanted with the materials. Um, so you see a lot of, they mix the materials. You see a lot of, this one is meant for sorting by size, but they start stacking the materials. It's all fair game as long as it's constructive. If someone is interrupting another child so they cannot work, she might redirect that. But she never made them, she always allowed, encouraged them to work together and to observe each other. All of that was allowed. Um, so it's a very free and relaxed atmosphere. Um, so freedom of movement, freedom of mind. The second principle was essentially that teachers are scientists, and I covered this a little bit already. Your job as the director in a Montessori environment is just to direct, it's to observe, you know. My child is really enjoying cars right now. I think he might be interested in basic physics. Let's try a marble run. And if that works, great. You can keep expanding on it. And if it doesn't, try again. Maybe he's really interested in the car because he likes the machinery. Let's try learning about basic machines. Whatever it is. It's just observe, hypothesize, experiment. And... Again, once you present it to the child, you let them do whatever they want with it so that you're able to continue observing. And so observation is really the key. She talks a lot about count the number of times they complete it, count the duration for which they have focused on it. Um, just observe, observe, observe. And we do that as scientists, you know, we're just collecting data, 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 data. We're just observing. And of course, you don't have to do this formally if you don't like to. Um, but if it helps you to concentrate, by all means, make a list, make a graph, whatever you want to do. But also just become aware of your ability to observe. And part of observing is that you should not interfere. Um, so she talks about this in her book uh, when she's training new teachers in this method. Uh, she says, I'm always, always, always telling the teachers to stop interfering, stop interfering, and stop inserting themselves. And... Finally, they get fed up with me and they stop doing anything at all. And the children start to, you know, be destructive and pull each other's hair. And of course, of course, that needs to be stopped. You know, that moment I tell them to step in. But, you know, we just as adults, we have an idea in our head about the way things should be done. And they should be done quickly and in this order and in this proficiency level. And we are doing it to get it accomplished. And if we 
if it's not that, then just let me take over. And we step in. We always, as a parents and adults, we're always inserting ourselves. And if we're doing that, we are not observing. We need to take a deep breath and step back and observe. I would have done it this way, but they're doing it that way. Let's see how long it takes them to figure it out. Maybe they will discover a new way to do it I haven't thought of. Um, we just observe. So literally sit on your hands if you need to. It makes a difference. Um, and just observe. Um, yes. So she does talk about how... It, it, I think it's helpful to understand where the child is coming from. She talks about how she observed... And she brings this up in more than one book. Um, a young child, you know, maybe a year, a year and a half old, who's just learning to toddle. And he was out at a park with his nanny and he was just filling a bucket with rocks, one at a time, picking up a rock, putting it in the bucket, filling the bucket with rocks. He was so intent. And the nanny was exhorting him, oh, please, it's time for dinner. We need to go home. It's five o'clock. And he's just so intent. He's ignoring her. Very age appropriate. And she finally says, oh, well, let me help you. And she fills up his bucket with rocks, sits him in the stroller, gives him the bucket and tries to leave. And the child bursts into tears and he's so upset. And the nanny can't figure it out. And at that moment, Maria Montessori had this realization, you know, he wasn't interested in a bucket full of rocks. The adult misunderstood that the purpose was to fill the bucket with rocks. We're doing it for a reason. We have a goal. We're going to check off our goal and move on. But that's not how children work. Again, children of ages three to six, two to six, um, what they're focused on is the action. It wasn't the bucket of rocks that he wanted. It was he wanted to experience the action of picking up a rock and putting it in a bucket. He wanted to experience the satisfaction of having filled the bucket himself. He just, for children, it is about the journey. It is about doing and experiencing and practicing and living. They very much live in the moment. Which is why, as per my last episode about expectations and transitions, it's so important to prepare them for things are about to change. Because they don't think ahead, like, practically at all. Um, they, they just live in the moment. They enjoy it. I think we can all uh, use a little more of that in our lives <laughs> as adults. At least I could. All right, so that's that. Observe, observe, observe. Stop and put in yourself. She talks a lot about how children are seeking very hard to develop themselves. And we don't always realize in one moment we could crush an entire inner impulse by inserting ourselves and interfering with their work. Um, and they might not come back to it um, because we stopped it. And so we have to be very, very careful when we intervene that we're only intervening when necessary. And so obviously as parents, there's times when it's necessary. You need to go to bed at seven and you do your best to, you know, get them to cooperate with you and give them your options. And, but at some point, yes, you need to go to bed. And so we do our best to enlist cooperation, but, um, you know, we only interfere when necessary. And I think we can apply this a lot more in playtime. Give children all the playtime they can have and only interfere when necessary. Observe, observe, observe. And the last one is particularly interesting because not only was it contrary to what they believed in her time, but we still believe this today and it, it's contrary to what we believe in our time. She said, 
we don't give rewards and we don't do punishments. They don't work. They don't work. For children, I'm just going to restate this. For children six and under, rewards and punishments do not work. Now, she talks a little bit about why she thinks this is. She talks about obedience. This is her second to last chapter. She talks about discipline and obedience. When she talks about discipline, she's talking about self-discipline. And basically what she's saying is obedience requires several things. First of all, it's something that happens when the brain is developmentally ready to do it. It's a developmental thing. Um, secondly, secondly, she observes there's three stages to obeying. Um, first and foremost, a child needs to understand what it means to obey. Very, very often we assume that our child understands what we mean, um, but they're very, very concrete thinkers. They need to have experienced something physically, literally, directly, in order to really understand it. And so sometimes we think our kids get it and they don't. So first and foremost, they need to understand it before they can even attempt to obey in a way that we would find acceptable. But secondly, though, there is three stages to being able to complete a task. So first and foremost, say she describes a newborn baby. They don't know how to move their bodies. They're unconsciously, constantly kind of in a state of movement, constantly trying to master their body. They will their hand to move, but they don't know how to do it yet. And their arm kind of goes kind of crazy. Babies, newborn babies' movements are very erratic because they don't have control yet. You know, but as they practice, they begin to gain control. You know, but a new a child who's just learning to walk is still very, very clumsy because phase two is they are consciously attempting. There's some order to their thoughts. They understand the way it's supposed to work, but they don't have mastery yet. And so sometimes they can do it and sometimes they can't. So I'm going to remind you, learning is cyclical. We succeed, we fail, we for, maybe forget for a time, and then we succeed again and it's cyclical. So this is stage two. And stage three is mastery. And when they master it and you say, oh, run quickly down the hallway to me, and they understand it and they have had enough practice to do it, they can do it and they'll follow through and they'll be delighted that they could do it, that they could follow through. And she talks a lot about um, children want to obey us. They love us. Oh my goodness. The parents and adults are children's literal worlds. They worship us. We are gods to them, okay? And they want to obey us. They want to obey us. And so, you know, sometimes we get really frustrated with children. You know, why aren't you listening to me? I need you to obey, you know? And they really want to. If they're not doing it, there's usually a developmental reason why. Either they're misbehaving in an attempt to meet their own developmental needs and grow their brains, or they are misbehaving because they don't comprehend what we're asking them to do. And that's why in Montessori we talk a lot about controlling the environment to control the child. You know, um, if I don't want my child to play in the powder on the floor that I put to clean up his pee accident on the carpet, I 
can either remove him from the room, or I can provide him his own tray of powder to play in the kitchen so that he can play with it without messing up my stuff. So the first option is I need him to listen, but he's not capable of doing so. So I'm just going to remove the temptation. And the second one is he clearly has some kind of developmental reason to seek after this texture. Let's give him the opportunity to explore this texture. Um, anyway, that's a tangent. She doesn't go through that in the book much, but it is nevertheless a strong Montessori principle. And the reason why I love Montessori is it's all about child development. And so if I know a related child development fact, I will just share it because I've studied Montessori and child development in tandem and they all come together in my brain. I don't always remember the differentiations of what I'm looking at. <laughs> all right, so um, those are the three tenets. Freedom of movement and the mind. Teachers as scientists. Observe, don't interfere. And no rewards or punishments. And still 11 step. So, yes. Continuing on no rewards and punishments. She just, yeah, she just found that they didn't work. And, um... What motivates children, what motivates humans in general, but is particularly true with children, is intrinsic. So children this age are intrinsically seeking to develop themselves. They're going through developmental phases, and they will do whatever they can to complete that developmental phase. They are chasing after it with everything in them. And that's why it's so hard to dissuade them from a task, even if you don't want them to do it. It's because they are, they are by golly, they are building their brain and they're going to do it. I don't remember the exact numbers, so I won't try to give them. But the majority of the brain is actually built through sensorial experiences post-birth, like 80% of the brain or something. Um, so yes, when children 2 to 6 or even younger are constantly seeking after stuff, it's literally they're growing their brains. And nature knows how to do that. And if you let them meet those phases, they will become happy and content and obedient. Oh, this is why I love the Montessori method. When she concludes her book, let me tell you, she describes all of the children in her children's house as happy, willingly obedient, polite, kind, and focused. They hate to be still. They hate to not work. And so this was a really interesting experience for her. So like I said, this was a poor house that they were providing as charity, uh, as daycare. And so some of the richer families in the neighborhood donated toys to the children's house. Oh, they just love playing with these old dolls that our children don't use anymore, whatever it was. And what she found is that the children did not play with them. When presented with other things to do, constructive things, real life things, things that pertained the world around them, things that allowed them to build their skills, they left those toys alone. And so she really condemns how adults in society, how we often just re regard children as, oh, well, they just need to play. Oh, you can do that later. Oh, you don't need to know. I'll take care of it. We often just like brushing our children aside. You shouldn't do anything but play. And she found that actually the opposite was true. Children are seeking to contribute to learn the skill to grow. So we want to give them that as much as possible um, because it's developmentally appropriate. Um, um, yes. So, yes. So behavior is motivated by our intrinsic feelings, especially for this age. And a lot of those are developmental at this age. 
but some of it simply for the enjoyment of doing things. Um, her analogy was, if you, you know, why is it that you obey the laws? Do you obey all of the laws because you're afraid of being punished? Or do you obey the laws because it's the right moral thing to do and you desire to do the right moral thing? And the same is true for children. Children desire to do good, they will do good. Um, so this can be particularly hard because uh, you can't give someone else motivation. It has to come from inside. Um, but it is something to think about and try to change over time. Okay. So I have some further notes here. Let's just go over what we already went over. She talks about the method is observing children's free and spontaneous action. Um, so basically, if you put them in a room with toys without giving them any suggestions at all, observe their free and spontaneous action and work from there. Secondly, she talks about the freedom. And she says, liberty is activity. Liberty leads to self-discipline. And this is true. As we do things on our own and build our minds, they become more ordered. And then we're able to do things in a disciplined way. Um, oh, yes. Okay. Here's a big one. Montessori, the Montessori community of today often talks a lot about independence. And this one really frustrates me personally because people so often misinterpret independence. I've sometimes seen people say, well, my six-month-old won't play independently. What do I do? Well, that's not age-appropriate. Or, you know, you shouldn't carry your child around because Montessori is all about independence. And if they can walk by themselves, they should walk by themselves. Uh, no. I mean, look, if you're tired of carrying your child and they can walk by themselves, it's okay to ask them to do that. But if they are happy being carried and you're happy carrying them, it's okay to do that. Um... Because we're not talking about forcing independence on our kids. We're not talking about them not needing us. Of course they're going to need us. Uh, developmentally speaking, their brains are underdeveloped. And they literally, like we are an extension of their brain for them. Um, this is things like they don't know how to emotionally regulate. And they rely on us for that emotional regulation. So if your child is crying, it's very important that you stay calm and nurture them because they're... They don't know how to do that yet. And if we can do that and soothe them, they will eventually build their brain and be able to do that um, through our example, through that wiring. Um, so yes, our children are dependent on us and they should be and they will be until their brains mature. And that's perfectly okay. That is not what Montessori is talking about when she talks about independence. What she talks about is... Do not make your children dependent on you. We are talking about independence, the opposite of dependent. So in a traditional classroom, children are dependent on their teachers for knowledge. And she wants to do it with that. In a Montessori classroom, children find their own knowledge. They build their own knowledge. They discover it on their own they have the tools available to them to build, discover, and, and, and put together the knowledge. So in a traditional classroom, 
A teacher might say, this is big, this is small. Which one is big and small? And um, the children, you know, might know, but they might just be bored. Whereas in a Montessori classroom, she gives you them the pink tower, which are a bunch of cubes that they can stack and discover what big and small means for themselves. And this is really important because children this age, two to six, like I said, are tactile learners. They're very physical and literal. And so by giving them things for their hands, they learn. And Montessori talks a lot about this in her other books. Um, we learn first through the hands. And this is true, especially at this age. This is developmentally uh, just a fact. Um, so I just, I love that. So yes, when we talk about independence in Montessori, we're talking about do not make children dependent on you. So one example she gives, and I remember this quote vividly. I didn't write it down. I just remember it. She says, quote, the mother who will not give the child the spoon and allow them to feed themselves, the mother who does not even attempt to sit and model how the child should feed themselves is a bad mother, unquote. And a lot of people, I think a lot of people are really offended by this and they, they have a hard time with Montessori because she's really strict about some things. And this is one thing she's strict about. She's, look, we if we are feeding the baby, the baby is dependent on us to feed them. If we give the baby the spoon, we are giving them independence. We are giving them freedom, competence, self-sufficiency. We are freeing their spirits. We are liberating their souls. And we are developing humans who can develop themselves. And that is a key to life, my friends. Um, so as much as possible, we give them those chances and we let them do what they need to do. So she says, don't spoon feed your baby, give them the spoon, let them do it. Um, so she'd probably be an advocate for what we call baby led weaning these days. Um, I know I am, I enjoy that a lot, but we're moving on from that. Another handy thing about the independence thing, guys, is that um, we don't need to be slaves or servants to our children. So this was true then and it's still true now. We often, as parents, I'm guilty of this, I know, and other parents are as well, I'm sure, um, we're guilty of becoming slaves and servants to our children, you know. Uh, we just think we need to do everything for them, and so we wear ourselves out with all of our time being made to meet their needs, which, I mean, again, they do need us and we should meet those needs. But very often, they can do it themselves, and we need to let them do it themselves. When your two-year-old spills, they can go get a cloth and wipe up the spill. And you might need to check it after and make sure it's completely wiped up. But you don't have to render them immobile and incompetent. In You don't have to wear yourselves out in this servitude. Um, you can you can get them to do it and you can you can do that i don't think i'm describing this part very well so i apologize if i am uh, offending anyone or confusing anyone um, but i do know that i sometimes wear myself out doing things for my kid he can do for himself and that's the moment when you have to say gosh you can do this you should do this and sometimes they won't want to and 
then you might say, well, let's do it together or let's take turns because, you know, they are dependent on you and it's okay to, if they need you, it's okay to let them need you. But then, you know, there's other times when you know they can and it's okay to say, hey, I know you can do this and to expect them to do it. And so do use your best judgment. Um, I do think this is one of the things that makes Montessori difficult for many people is it's all about understanding the principle and applying it on your own. And again, I think we're a society that's very involved with rules and checklists and like the checklist to success or the checklist to what is a good education or whatever. And so in the Montessori community today, you see a lot of like Montessori quote, you know, like rules with air quotes, but she didn't have any rules. She had three major principles and she had some didactic materials that worked and it should be noted, a lot of her didactic materials were handmade just with, with what was available to them. Because again, this was a poor house. The sandpaper letters, she just did with what was available. She had some paper and she had some sandpaper and she just made them. Um, the color tablets were originally made with silk. So like the stuff, uh, like embroidery silk that was just wrapped around a spool. Um, so it was just stuff that was donated or that they had lying around. Um, and so, like, I think people often get hung up on, we have to use the, the Montessori materials. You don't. It's okay to make them. There's a few that you should probably buy just because they will be difficult to make. And she, in her turn, commissioned those ones. And those are the ones, whenever she talks about numbers or sizing, those are ones you should buy because her reasons for doing numbers and, and sizes is to give that, again, tactile feel for how sizing works. Um... So the pink tower is from 10 centimeters, 9 centimeters, 8 centimeters, etc. down to 1 centimeter. And by doing this, we give children an understanding of the metric system, of the physical vol uh, area that something takes. Um, that kind of thing is very important. Um, the knobbed cylinders or knobbed blocks, or cylinder blocks, excuse me. Knobbed cylinders or cylinder blocks, depending on how you describe them. Um, there's 10 of those and they vary in specific lengths and widths. Um, those are probably worth buying. Um, yes. I may or may not make a future episode about what you should buy and should DIY. But anyway, moving on. Point is, we have a lot of rules in Montessori today that aren't true rules. Um, it's just that people like to have a checklist to follow so they get hung up on certain aspects. Really, Montessori is just about principles. And so, as best you can, try to understand the principle. Try to understand why it exists. And apply it with your best judgment. And of course, we'll get it wrong sometimes. I'm sure she got it wrong sometimes. I think she admits as much. Um, so it's okay to learn from our mistakes and to keep growing. Um... Oh yes, expanding on the no punishments or rewards. Um, she says, stop the destructive behavior. Um, and then at another time, is usually best, at a different time, teach by teaching, not by correcting. She doesn't go through this very heavily in this book, but it is in one of her other books. Teach by teaching, not by correcting. So what do we mean by this? Um, when your child goes to color a tree, okay, this is an example she used in her book. Um, she said she was giving the children essential trees and then some colored pencils. And, you know, very often these five-year-olds would color the trees red. The leaves were red. And the directress 
impulse was to say, oh, no, no, don't you know that leaves are green here? Color them green. And Montessori stopped her and said, let him do it. So, because to stop and, and say, do it green would have been a correction. It would have been a, you're doing it wrong, do it this way, a correction. She said, let him do it. And then later, she simply focused on giving the child the color box material. So this one, for those who aren't familiar, is it has all of the colors. Um, red, blue, yellow, green, purple, orange, pink, brown, black. And it has them in eight shades um, from light to dark. And she, there's a sequence you follow to get children to understand the colors. And she just had him practice that. And after some time, a couple weeks or a month, I don't remember, when the child was outside, he'd stop and look at the sky and he'd go, oh, the sky is blue. And he became an observer. And then one day when they gave him the coloring page with the tree, he colored the leaves green because he had observed when he was playing outside that the leaves were green. So in this instance, we didn't correct the child but rather at another time we taught him colors and we taught him observation. And he, through his own powers, was able to observe and learn um, how the colors work. And her method's really big about teaching children to be observers. This is a really good skill, life skill. I like this. Um, so we teach by teaching, not by correcting. Um, we also, of course, lead by our example. Um, I don't think much more needs to be said on that. And another thing is that when you do need to correct a child, like when they are being destructive and you need to immediately step in, you should always, always show an increase of love to the child. She said, as if they were sick or infirm, you should treat them with special care um, because that will help them feel better and help them understand that you love them and soften the blow. And this is a really important principle I think humans could use on other adults, frankly. Um, but yes, it's important to, to do that. Always, 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 if you have to step in and correct, be very sympathetic. I know that was really hard for you when this happened. I'm so sorry. I love you so much and I think you are so special and I can't wait for us to try again. And just reaffirming that love gives them a real sense of security. Oh, it's so important to give your children a sense of security, a safe space. You know, I did have to correct you, but that doesn't mean you're wrong as a person. It doesn't mean you're, you're, you are a bad person. It just means you made a mistake and I love you and you're a good person and you're safe here. Please give that to your children. And your spouses. <laughs> um, it, you can take some comfort in the fact um, I did mention before she talked about you know we have to be careful when we step in because we could quash an impulse that they might not recover from you should take comfort in the fact that life is going to develop you can't stop it um, you can hinder it a little bit or you can help it through your environment and the way you handle things. But it is going to develop one way or another. So you're going to screw things up as parents. You're probably not going to permanently ruin them. Unless you're, you know, 
abusive or extremely awful as a parent, but you're probably not, or you wouldn't be listening to this. Um, very, very few parents are. Um, and those that are, I feel really bad for, because something must have gone really wrong in their development for that to have happened. Anyway. Let's see. So we're going to talk a little bit about how to give lessons in the Montessori method. Um, lessons are always in three parts. Again, she developed this. So here's what's interesting to me. These are some personal observations. She developed this method for children ages two to six. And she explicitly states that you should allow the child some time to explore the material before you try to give them a lesson because they should have an experience of what it is before you begin labeling things or directing them. And this was interesting to me because I have read this in Montessori circles and I have tried applying it with my child who was under two at the time and it never worked. Like he just wasn't interested. And so what I think what it actually is, is she mentions another one of her books, how children will start at their own developmental level and then sometimes go backwards to explore what came earlier and master those things. Um, and I think that for children two and under, for the proper sequence of development is first to label a thing. You give them something red and you say, this is red. And second, to allow them to explore it and gain that experience with it. And then third, they begin to apply that knowledge in say, matching or gradations. Um, yes, matching first and then gradations. Um, so with her teaching children two to six, what she found was that their developmental level, what they always wanted first was the experience of the thing, and then the label, and then gradation, and then matching, and then gradations. Um, so yes, if your children are under two, label, then experience, then match, then gradation. And this is a thing that will take a full two years for them to begin to master. And if your children are two to six, experience, then label, then match, then gradation. Or even if they're a little older, they might change some of that order up because again, they'll start at their own developmental level and then they'll go backwards or forwards as they see fit. Um, but I just thought it was an interesting thing uh, because sometimes we view Montessori as the be-all end-all, but she states in her own book that this was only the beginning. This was, if I can just get other teachers, she says, she thinks if she can just get other teachers to follow this, they can build on what's here and improve and learn more than what she knows. She knows this was just a beginning point and we can build on it. And so I'd really like to do more work with that because in the hundred years since she published her materials, we have seen little change in the Montessori materials and some stagnation. And I just... I know there is more, and I, I, oh, I want to work on it. One thing at a time. <laughs> but uh, let's continue this book. Oh, yes, yeah, so lessons. Here's how we give lessons in the Montessori Method. There are three parts. The first part is, you know, once they've had their experience with it, as she directs, um, then you label. This is red. This is blue. And we always do two contrasting elements. So red and blue. Um... Or you can't mix those up, but if you did say red and purple, it might be harder to, to tell the difference. So we always start with contrasts. So if you're doing the knobbed cylinders, you would take the tallest one and the shortest one. And you would say tall, short. 
The second part of the lesson would be to say, where is the tall one? Where is the short one? And this part is key. We do not correct the children. So if we say, where is the tall one? And they hand us the short one. We simply smile and say, thank you. And we let it go. We present the lesson again when we think that they had mastered it. Um, I think it is also appropriate to make a game of it. So with my two-year-old, the advice I read when I was working with my two-year-old that works really well for him, so I think is worth sharing here, is you can simply relabel what they hand you. So if I say, where is the tallest? And he hands me the shortest, I say, that is the shortest. Where is the tallest? And by giving him the chance to try and try again, it's really just a learning experience. It's an explore exploration experience. So he doesn't feel reproved, corrected, or wrong. And that's the key thing. Montessori says, above all, we should not make the child feel he is wrong. And so that's really all she's aiming for when she says we don't correct them. Um, is because children who are corrected will lose interest. It's also not uncommon for them to feel embarrassed or ashamed. Um, and they will simply just stop trying. They'll move on. So we don't want to do that. So we can make a game of correction. You know, we can relabel things. We can let them explore. We can, or we can just let it go. Thank you for giving me that one. And let them play with it, how they're going to play with it and move on. And try again another day when you think they are uh, better prepared. Um, and how do you know you're prepared? They're prepared. You just, you observe. Um, so yes, we start with opposites and then we might become more and more refined. So with the tallest and shortest, we then take the next tallest and shortest, um, which are closer in size, you know, tall, short, and the next tall, short, until you've got the two in the middle that are almost the same size, but one is tall and one is shorter. Um, and so, yes, first we present, we present in the extreme opposites, tall, short. And then we say, that's step one. Step two, where is the tallest one? We ask. Step three, um, what is this? So this requires them to bring it from their own knowledge bank. Um, and it's the hardest step. What is this? And if they can successfully answer, you know that they know the, know the concept. Um, and that is how you give lessons in Montessori. Um, let's see. Check my notes if I missed anything. Ah, yes. I just wanted to talk about the didactic materials for a moment. Uh, again, because she was a scientist, she really refined things. So, slight detour. Maria Montessori observed what she called the sensitive periods, and she talks about this in her other works. But basically, when we are developing, we follow patterns. And so the ages from two to six, the sensitivity is for the senses. Like I said, we're building our brain at that age through um, physical things. We're we need sensorial materials. Um, and she observed this need. And so her materials, most of them, are simply for the refining of the physical senses. And so she isolates each sense one at a time. Again, she's a scientist. And isolating each one separately is very important to achieve results and to know that your experiment is successful. Um, I don't know if you guys remember from science class, but if you do an experiment where multiple factors could have led to the success, it wasn't a good experiment. Isolating the factor you're trying to test is very important to know if it's successful. So she really believed in isolating things. 
And my example for this is she did invent the, well, I don't know if she invented it, but she does have materials where they're sorting by size. And so I always think of those rainbow stackers um, because with the rainbow stackers, there's multiple ways to solve it. You don't have to know large from small in order to stack them that way. You could also just know the order of the rainbow, or you could just memorize the order of the colors. Um, and so that's not isolating the sense of size very well. And so her materials, you'll notice, are often one color. And it's usually a pale, non-obtrusive color. Pink, brown, red. Um, it's not neon, it's not bright, it's not flashy, it just is an attractive color that is non-obtrusive. So that children aren't focused on, they're not being distracted by this color, they're focused on the size of things. So isolating the senses is really important. Um, yeah, I just, I think that's really, really important and I love that she really works on that. Um, also, a lot of her, the materials correct themselves and that's why you don't have to step in and correct the children. Um, so, for example, with the pink tower, if you stack anything but the largest on the bottom, the tower will fall over. And so, through enough time, through enough experience, they figure it out and begin to do it in the correct order. And, of course, they struggle with the two biggest ones the most, because they're the most similar in size. Um, but they eventually refine it where they can do it perfectly. And again, this is similar to we talked about the newborn infant who wills his hand to move, but his movements are erratic because he doesn't have enough experience to do it. And with experience, he's able to willfully move and then and then move it with very fine coordination. Um, similarly, when the children are playing with these materials, at first it's erratic. They're just laying them all out because that's what they've seen people do or because that's what's interesting. And then with time, as they gain that experience, they begin to line, try to line them up in the right order, but they get it wrong sometimes. Um, but again, with enough time, they begin to observe those differences for themselves and they begin to make those corrections. Um, so the work in Montessori is self-correcting. And this is so important because again, it allows the child to learn on their own and we don't have to, and we don't have to interrupt them. Um, we can just simply let them be and know and trust them and trust their development to get them where they need to be. Um, let's see. Yes, I did want to talk about my favorite part of the book was actually the very end. Uh, she puts all of her materials into what she calls grades. I'm going to use the word levels because grade one, grade two in today's vernacular means, you know, elementary one and two in her vernacular. So I liked the term levels um, for a better modern day translation. So level one of the materials. First, she teaches the children how to move the chairs quietly. Then she gives them the dressing frames. So these are wooden frames, like a picture frame, that have cloth on them that isolate different ways of securing clothing. So zippers, buttons, Velcro, what have you. You can make these on your own um, through, uh, say, old clothes you're going to throw away, or maybe you go to the used clothes store and buy something for cheap. Um, someone recommended buying small frames from the dollar store. 
Um, my child is interested in them. I'm thinking about making like a doll version. So that's an option. Um, do what works for you and your kid. But yes, we talk about the dressing frames, our level one material. Um, so how to move your chair quietly, the dressing frames, and then the knobbed cylinders or the cylinder blocks, depending on what you call them. Uh, if you look those up, there's a, there's four different sets. Um, they have four different levels, basically easy to hard. And they're basically, they're just cylinders. There's tall to short and thick to thin. Tall and thick to short and thin. Short and fat to tall and thin. Um, I don't know if that's the exact order, but it's close to it. And the reason for starting here is she says, basically, we're giving the children, we're teaching them how to concentrate with the knob cylinder. If you put it in wrong, it either won't fit or you'll see right away that it's not level and it's not right. And so it's a self-contained activity that children will repeat until they master it. Um, and it teaches them to concentrate on one thing. Um, level two is being to be able to rise and sit in silence. Um, she introduces something called the line game, which is the line on the floor. You teach the children how to walk quietly on it. You might teach them how to march on it. You might do it as a class. You will do it with different tempos and rhythms. And so you might get a tambourine or just a clap or whatever and you know do it fast or slow to the rhythm. And this um, does isolate their sense of rhythm. And you need to do the same rhythms over and over and over and give them the chance to practice. Um, and then you can start doing more complicated rhythms as they get older, or as they get more masterful. Let's put it that way, because age isn't what we're basing things on here. Um, also the red rods. These are for distinguishing length. These need to be the right size. You should buy them. Uh, the brown stair, again, needs to be the right size. You should buy it. The pink tower, buy it. Um, oh yes, before we offer sensory materials to the children, we give them a finger preparation. So we put their fingertips in warm water. We put their fingertips in cold water. And we dry them. And this brings an awareness to touch in their fingers. And then we can begin giving them, you know, now that we have warmed up our fingers, we can do you know, this rough and smooth board or whatever sensorial material you're doing that day. Um, so she does rough and smooth boards. You can DIY these uh, with sandpaper or other materials. Um, this is also a good place to introduce a fabric box. This was not in her original stuff, but follows very closely with what she's introducing here. And then she does um, the color boxes, color matching, just the primary colors she starts with. Um, so level two is about refining your sense of physical grace just a little bit, becoming more aware of yourself, and finger touching. About No, not sorry, not finger touching, size discrimination. It's all about size discrimination. Level three, children are able to wash themselves, dress and undress themselves. Um, they begin doing basic cleaning tasks. They dust, they sweep, um, these kind of isolated tasks. Um, they know how to handle things gently and appropriately. They begin to do color tablet gradation and rough smooth gradation. We have the thermic bottles. You can DIY these, but it will probably be easier to buy them. Uh, the Barrick tablets. So Barrick 
is your sense of weight. So the Barrick tablets. Again, you could probably DIY these, but it might be easier to buy them. Uh, we do an exercise that d discriminates between what is noise and what is sound. You know, um, you know, if the classroom's a noisy hubbub, that's noise. But if I'm speaking to you, that's sound. So we do some games to exercise that sense. Um, and we do, oh, the geometric insets. Um, you can definitely DIY these. There are some free printables online. Um, so with these, we begin tracing them with our fingers. We trace this shape, the outside of the inset, and the inside where they would go, and we put them together. So if you have a square, that's your puzzle piece, that's your one inset, and the inside is a circle, you pick up the circle, you trace the outside of the circle with one, first one finger, then two fingers, um, depending on your child's level. Um, and this is a preparation for writing, is developing fine motor skills. So they trace the circle, the one they picked up, they trace the puzzle piece where it's going to go in, and then they put it in. So we do the geometric insets. Again, we start with opposites, so you would do a circle, a square, and then later like a triangle and a polygon or whatever where you have these differences. Um, and then as they later, as they begin to master that, you might just do all the types of triangles in one. Um, so yes, level three is about beginning to refine our fine motor. Um, we have a fair amount of control and coordination for gross motor. Um, we have an awareness of ourselves and how to behave. Um, and we're focused on gradations. So. Level two is matching, level three is gradations. Um, dark to light, heavy to, to light, um, hot to cold. Um, so level four, they've mastered balance and rhythm on the line and can control their movements. They are graceful, quiet, and gentle. They can set and clear a table. They can clean a room. Like if you just go in and say, oh, it's time to clean the room, they'll know all the tasks to do and execute them. Um, they are taught minute care of hygiene, such as brushing their teeth and cleaning their nails. Um, we introduce the sound cylinders. So if you've noticed, um, level one and level two were uh, size discriminations. Level three was visual discriminations, um, but also touch and weight. And level four, we move on to sound. So we're isolating each sense, and she's kind of learned um, that this is the order of the senses the children are interested in, in completing. Um, so at this point we move on to sound cylinders. This is just matching. Um, we begin to do pencil exercises with the geometric insets. So when they take the circle out of the puzzle piece there, they take a pencil and they put the circle on a paper and they trace around the circle. And they're beginning to learn how to handle the pencil. Um, we introduce the sandpaper letters and numbers. Again, we trace it first with one finger. When they've mastered that and they're ready, with two fingers. Um, we introduce the movable alphabet. Uh, this is literally just, you have an alphabet with lots of multiples of the same letters and they're in a nice little box and children begin to sound out words. Um, We give them realistic coloring pages. This is to develop their sense of observation of the real world. Um, we give them the red and blue rods. These are for counting. This begins to help them understand math. So we begin with quantifying. 
Um, when they can do that, we give them the counting spindles. Um, again, this is quantifying. Um, so this is the number three, count three spindles. Um, and we can also do a counting game. Um, so this number is five. If we lay out one on the left, one on the right, on the bottom below that, one on the left, one on the right, and then there's one left over, that's odd, or six is gonna be two rows of three, or two columns of three, it's even, and they begin to visually discriminate between even and odd. Um, so that's level four. Um, and level five, we move on to really complicated rhythms on the line. We give them watercolors, we give them, we, we encourage them to do nature, nature drawings, to go draw flowers in the garden, for example. Um, you see that they begin to spontaneously write and read words. So the progression for writing, there's three things you need to know for writing. And she kind of goes through basic, uh, I really, really encourage you guys to read this book because I can't summarize it all. Uh, but she goes through each subject and how it's built. Um, I can go through it quickly. This is already a long episode, so I guess feel free to take a break at a time. Um, so let's just talk about the subjects of Montessori. There is personal hygiene. There is practical life. So with hygiene, we go from, you know, we, we ask them in the morning, you know, look, is your hair clean? Are your clothes neat? Should we wear an apron to keep our clothes neat? We can get ourselves dressed. We practice with the dressing frames. We isolate each skill and we build it. Um, so we do lots of practical life. Here's how to sweep and clean. And again, we isolate and then they can ladder those skills later. There's a lot of developing the senses. Um, and you've noticed what she went from was visual discrimination to gradations and touch and weight. And then um, sound. There are more than five senses. I think there were none. So there's sight, smell, touch, sound, taste. And in most modern classrooms, we also have smelling bottles and taste bottles. I think she mentions them in the book, but she doesn't grade them, uh, level them. So there's those five basics that we know, but there's also barracks, so your sense of weight. There's thermic, your sense of temperature. Pain is also a sense, but we don't uh, practice that one for obvious reasons. Um, although I suppose don't be alarmed if your children are, I don't know, say putting batteries on their tongue because it feels funny and they're experiencing pain. Um, I'm sure I've missed one somewhere. Oh yes, and your sense of, your vestibular sense, your sense of balance and motion and gravity. We don't have any uh, ways to practice that in the classroom, but we do encourage lots of outdoor play. She had a balancing beam. Um, she described one material that they had outdoors. It was a fence, and the children could put their feet on the lower part of the fence where there was a line, and they uh, grabbed the top of the fence and walk sideways along it. Lo young, young children love to do that. My two-year-old has found a way to do that at the grocery store with those center aisle coolers. He loves it. Um, so that kind of movement, um, yes, let's see, other subjects and their sequence. I'm really interested in the way, uh, the developmental sequence, because your child could be anywhere on the developmental sequence at any age, 
And so the, the developmental sequence matters more than age. And you can still guess at the age. Um, you know, the two and three-year-olds enjoyed doing the fence game I just described, but the five and six-year-olds really enjoyed doing line activities more. Um, and above all, it's all, again, it's about the freedom of choice. So she said that some children, look, if your child doesn't want to learn how to write at the age of six or earlier, and they've never shown interest, it's okay to let them do it when they're ready, because they'll probably be ready one day. Um, so just as the regular schools in that era didn't exhort their children to begin writing before the age of six, the Montessori classroom certainly does not, because the Montessori classroom respects autonomy. And she, clear, she says that very clearly, that example. Um, but she also says that many children, without any coaxing on your part, are simply observers, and they've seen you give the lesson to other children enough times, they simply pick it up on their own. Um, and so, yeah, we just, we let the children choose. We, you know, would you like to learn this? I think that you would enjoy it. But if they don't want to, we just say, okay, and we let them do what they want. Um, sorry, no, anyway. So we've got the um, sensory uh, materials. Um, we talk about how language is developed. Um, so we're not talking about how children learn to speak because that was pre her age. You know, children at the age of two can speak fairly well. Uh, well, not very clearly, um, but they can speak the language that they are living. Um, but what she found was that for this, for so for writing, first of all, she found that writing came before reading. Most children begin writing on their own around the age of four. Um, she teaches writing phonetically. Um, Italian is a phonetic language. English is confusing, so I definitely recommend finding uh, phonics programs or researching phonics charts. There is the Maguire, I think it's called, the Maguire reader that used to be used, and I think that's a fine starting place because they have the phonetic chart in English. So for example, two, e, two O's says OO, that is one phoneme, and whereas in some languages, I know Japanese is one, each letter has one sound and it only ever makes that sound, it makes spelling and reading easy. But English is confusing because O says ah, except when there's two O's together and then it's a different phoneme entirely and it says ooh. Um, so we teach the phonemes, um, but first we teach the letters and we teach them phonetically. You know, A as in apple, B as in bat, X as in fox, and so on. Um, so what we find for reading is there's three things that are needed. Uh, one, just the developmental readiness, and that will spontaneously happen. Two, um, the understanding of what the letters are. Um, so again, phonetically, uh, we teach that. And three, the fine motor skills, which is why she talks a lot about using the tracing of the geometric figures. Um, so yes, once you trace them with your finger and then you trace them on a paper with a pencil, you can start doing two or three on top of each other and making like geometric designs. And then once you've made, you know, a circle, you might start putting lines inside the circle. I've seen some people do it with rulers. She did not mention a ruler, so I don't know, but you practice putting lines only inside the circle, for example, and we're just refining that sense, uh, that fine motor ability to use a pencil. Um, 
And then one day she finds that the children begin to write. And they might do this with a pencil or they might do this with the movable alphabet, but they begin sounding out the letters and words. So in English, this is usually a simple consonant vowel consonant words like cat, bat, rat, or can, or what have you. And so the children will go k, a, t, and they'll write a word. Once they can write singular words, they then move on to reading uh, singular words. They really enjoy, she had like a basket full of just words folded on a slip of paper, and they just pull a paper out, open it, read it, put it back. And particularly they'd use objects around the classroom, things that they could read and understand, and some children enjoy labeling them. Um, but at this point, they're really reading more out of me mechanic. It's a, it's a me mechanical action. K at. They don't always know that it means cat. Um, she says if she has children who run into this trouble, she simply sits them down and says, read this word. K at. Read it faster. K at. Faster. K at. Can you do it faster? Cat. And then she says, you see the dawning moment on their face. Oh, it means cat. And they get excited and they begin to understand what they're reading. And then what you find is eventually one day, again, when they're developmentally ready, they just spontaneously begin writing sentences. I love flowers or whatever. And after a while, they begin to read and, and comprehend actual sentences. So she actually, once the children had gotten over reading uh, at the beginning or reading those slips of paper voraciously, people gave them books and she would give them the books and the children would read the books. And she'd just sit and watch and then she'd ask, did you understand what that book was about? And the child would look at them and say, no. That's because they were reading mechanically. They didn't actually understand the content yet. And so what she found was that, yes, one day they'll spontaneously write full sentences and they'll compose. And then they'll begin, eventually a little while after that, they'll begin to understand reading, um, comprehending full sentences. And she said all of this process, she said learning to write took about two months on average and learning to read again was about two months, one to two months for reading and writing each separately. Um, as far as the individual things go. So that's pretty interesting. Um, for math, so first we start with quantifying. She says very early on she gives them money so they can understand, you know, 100 pennies is the same as a dollar or whatever, and we can do those exchanges. And they just find that interesting and makes counting more interesting because it's applicable to life. Um, but we have the color of rods with um, counting and math. And so this is one of those ones that is sized a certain way for the metric system. Um, I believe each one was about 10 centimeters. So it's alternating red and blue. And you have one through 10. And these rods obviously get longer as the higher number goes together. And you just begin to count. And when they're able to count them consistently and line them up correctly, one day she'll begin teaching them math by saying, oh, look, the nine rod and the one rod are the same as the 10 rod. And you can physically line them up. The eight rod and the two rod are the same as the 10 rod. And so on until you get to five, at which we don't have two fives. So we stop and say, look, if the five one and you flip it over on its long ways. If you if you had two fives like this, there would be 10. And eventually she teaches them to write it. One plus nine is 10. Two plus eight is 10. Um, two, five times two is 10. 
And then we begin to reverse it. Look, if I take one rod away from nine, if I, get, if I have these 10 rods and I take one away, now I have nine. I have 10 rods and I take two away, now I have eight. Um, and if I take this 10 rod and I break it into two, if I were to do that, I would have two fines. And so then eventually we teach them to write it. 10 minus one is nine, eight, 10 minus two is eight, and 10 divided by two is five. Um, and then you begin to, you know, continue. They can do each number. They did 10, now they can do nine, eight, seven, whatever it is, until they can quantify really well. Now I'm gonna be frank. She talks about how to transfer to beyond 10. So you know, 11 through 20, she talks a lot about how to handle the decimal system as far as every time you add a zero, it's a new placeholder and all of that jazz. I personally did not follow her explanation well. So I will be doing more research on that before I present it to my child, obviously. Um, there are lots of resources online. Most Montessori things, you can do some basic research and someone's written a blog post or shared a video or what have you. So you can do some research and cobble things together. And, it, and again, it's okay if you do some things wrong or because your, your kids will learn and then you can keep presenting things to them. Um, so yes, with math, we do quantifying and then basic addition, subtraction, multiplication, division. We understand even and odd. Um, yes. But I just want to... Um, so here's the thing. Here's why I love the Montessori method. She says at the end, she says, look, to all the outsiders, this looks like we are teaching children reading, writing, and math. But every single one of our exercises is designed to develop willpower or discipline, or grace, or social skills. Every day they have a lesson on social skills. The teacher has a conversation and they, they practice learning social skills. Um, I love this aspect of Montessori because social skills are indeed a taught thing and we don't do that for some reason in public school. It bothers me. We should because I don't have good social skills and I would have loved to have classes. Uh, anyway, um, so she says, look, when we give them the exercise that says, here's the number three, go take only three objects. Of course, the five-year-old wants all the objects and they have to really exert self-discipline to only get three. Or when the child gets a zero, they're disappointed that they don't get to take any objects and they have to learn how to bear that patiently. And so all of these activities are really about developing what we might call these days soft skills. It's about developing our, us as humans. It's about developing our ability to succeed in life and to learn on our own and to become kind and good and moral and disciplined and, you know, generous. Any positive value attribute you can give, that's really what her... Uh, method focuses on. And this makes sense. When we, when our developmental needs are met, we are able to give to others. We are able to control ourselves. Our, our brains know how to build themselves. And anytime I find I'm having trouble as an adult, it's almost always that something went wrong in my development. And I'm not trying to blame my parents for anything. I'm, I know that they did the best they could with what they had. 
but they couldn't do it all. And there's some things they did wrong. But knowing that it's developmental, I can sit and go, okay, I'm having a really hard time with emotional regulation. How does emotional regulation develop? And how can I follow that progression in order to develop it in within myself? And when I'm able to do that, it's basically self-parenting, and I'm able to correct where that development wrong and rebuild my brain. Sometimes we think as adults we're not capable anymore, but we can always learn. Now, as Montessori says, it's a lot harder. Once you've passed your sensitive period for a thing, it is very difficult to obtain it, but you, you can still grow your brain as an adult. I'm just, I'm putting that out there. Um, so anyway, when our developmental needs are met, we can grow into these wonderful adults. Um, Maria Montessori was religious. A lot of her method was actually based on, I don't know if it was based on per se, but she makes a lot of analogies to the Bible and the New Testament and, and Jesus Christ. And I'm religious too. And I believe God sent us to earth to develop into perfect beings. And so it, to me personally, it makes sense that when our developmental needs are met, we're able to become good and develop each of those virtues. This isn't a sermon. This is just me sharing my thoughts. I won't get too weird about that because I know some people are uncomfortable with it. But uh, for those who are interested in it, um, it's just something fun to think about. So I'm going to end this episode. Thank you so much for putting up with my long, long episode today. With a quote by Montessori from the book. It's a really long quote. It's several quotes smushed together. Um, let's see. Did I have more than one quote? Let me double check before I begin. Ah, yes. Quote. First quote. All education of little children must be governed by this principle to help the natural, psychic, and physical development of the child. Unquote. So again, it's just developmentally based, and I love that. Because we're teaching children how to succeed in their personal lives for the rest of their life. Um, and how to be, contribu be contributors to society and learn on their own. The other quote I have, this is the really long one, and it's my last quote. Quote, The elementary classes in the future should begin with children such as ours who know how to read and write. Children who know how to take care of themselves, how to dress and undress, and to wash themselves. Children who are familiar with the rules of good conduct and courtesy, and who are thoroughly disciplined in the highest sense of the term. Pause. Again, when she talks about discipline, she's talking about self-discipline. Um, when someone is obedient, it is because they're willfully subduing their own will in order to carry out your will. And she kind of talks about that. Um... So obedience comes from self-discipline. Um, continuing the quote where I left off. Who are thoroughly disciplined in the highest sense of the term, having developed and become masters of themselves through liberty. Children who possess, besides a perfect mastery of the articulate language, the ability to read written language in an elementary way, and to begin to enter upon the conquest of logical language. These children pronounce clearly, write in a firm hand, and are full of grace in their movements. They are the earnest of a humanity grown in the cult of beauty, the infancy of an all-conquering humanity, since they are intelligent and patient observers of their environment. 
and to possess in the form of intellectual liberty the power of spontaneous reasoning. For such children, we should found an elementary school worthy to receive them and to guide them further along the path of life and of civilization, a school loyal to the same educational principles of respect for the freedom of the child and for his spontaneous manifestations, principles which shall form the personality of these little men. Unquote. I just, I really love how she's always respected children as little men. Because while it's true that children have different motivations than ours and they're on a different level in their development, all humans are humans and we have human tendencies and they're little persons. And respecting that and respecting their developmental needs at the same time now that's an art we all should master. Um, anyway, this is a fantastic book. Again, you can find it for free online, uh, the, the Gutenberg Project, or an audiobook version with LibriVox. Again, it's a little bit difficult to read and understand, um, but you can find other resources online to help you and guide you along. Um, I highly recommend reading it, even if you don't understand most of it. There's some gems in there, and it will influence you. Um, so if you just need to do the audiobook version on quick and just slow down the parts that are interesting, by all means, go for it. It is a good book. Uh, thank you so much for joining me today. Excuse my rambling. I hope I didn't get too weird on too many topics. Um, Yes, just um, as someone who studied child development, I just want to reaffirm that um, all of this lines up very well with the development of the child. And she wrote two other books for this age group that I would like to read next and share with you guys um, because they talk more about those developmental needs um, as well as her, the purpose of her educational method. Um, thank you for listening. Have a great day.